Danny Man with Sea to Sky for the first episode of the new year and more of a look back on everything that has happened in the past before it, as most of these yearly retrospectives go. It's kind of been a really slow start to 2024, not necessarily as much has been going in terms of everybody recovering after the New Year's and the holidays and not necessarily wanting to go in and buy anything or spend any of the gift card money that we've been able to accumulate over the past few weeks, but at the very least, the one good thing that's going to be lining up along the Sea to Sky Highway is that Whistler Blackcomb has gotten more than 100 centimeters of snow over the past week, and so leading into a potential trip for me towards the end of January is definitely inevitable, but that's beside the point. We want to get through essentially a media snapshot of everything that has come and gone over the course of 2023. I'll do a little bit on film and animation and pieces outside of Japan, just to at least kind of fill in the spots in between, just to kind of tell you how most of my year has gone in towards the rest of it, since there were a few changes between living conditions, between relationships, between jobs. It's been a hectic year, to say the least, to kind of line everything else up towards the rest of it, but at the very least, it's still another year that has gone by, continuing on through this podcast. And so, at the very least, to get started with a retrospective on 2023, the, I guess the section that we'll begin with will lead into the films that I was able to go through. It's been... It wasn't as much as I was able to go through last year, considering that with 2022, the theaters were starting to reopen, and then everybody was trying to get back into the theaters and move over towards the rest of it to actually give their opportunities to get that cinematic experience with ones that he hadn't really been able to see for most of 2020 and 21. And 23 was just kind of leaning in towards the rest of that, really hoping in the theater's point of view, that they'll be able to get more butts and seats, and then at that point they'll be able to at least have the opportunity to at least recoup a lot of the losses that have been going up. But they're definitely trying, especially with at least Cineplex to the various degrees. They've been increasing ticket prices, they've been really hunkering down on limiting the amount of different things that you could watch, especially if you bought the Cinepass, which consistently throughout the year was the most debated thing that I was trying to go back towards, since there was more than enough films for me to satiate every aspect between romance, between action, between drama. It was just that I want to give them money, but the fact is, is that nearly half of the films that I go to see inside of these theaters are what they quote as a special event, which they are not allowing you to redeem on any of the tickets that you accumulate inside of the subscription pass. So at that point, it's just, well, shit, even if I decide to preemptively go apart with this subscription and then try to line up towards the rest, I guess in the long run it would still save me a little bit of money, but the problem is that I won't be able to use the majority of them on the pieces that I actually want to go and see. But I guess outside of me complaining about Cineplex and Cinepass and the monopolies that have been essentially creeping closer and closer over towards the Canadian cinematic landscape, uh, for the ones that I was able to go through and see in theaters, for a live action in particular, um, probably like some of the more standouts that everybody's going to be talking about because this is now where you're getting into awards season, we're soon going to be getting the Crunchyroll Anime Awards. We're going to be getting uh, Reddits and Annie Lists and all of these other different pieces, and they're going to be fitting in their places on the best pieces of media that they were able to see in 2023. 
Uh, and then the Golden Globes just passed as well as the Oscars, but thankfully we don't have to talk about the Oscars too much, and that's only going to be a blip leading into what's going to be happening in the first parts of this year. But, I mean, I did like Oppenheimer. For Canadian filmmakers, I'm definitely really glad to say that Blackberry was definitely one of my favorite films as a autobiographical... Not... Eh, as a biographical pick on the rise and fall of Blackberry, considering that, to me... When BlackBerry was around, it was this thing that, you know, was always being talked about and something that you always saw. My dad was a proponent user of BlackBerry. And then Apple came and BlackBerry just vanished. And it was something that I didn't necessarily pay too much attention towards considering that, you know, it was just a phone. It was just a fad. Fads move on just like a lot of things, especially when it comes to teenagers' minds. It'll catch up eventually. BlackBerry never caught up. And seeing the way that they were able to dictate basically the one of the biggest cell phone manufacturers monolith of a hold that they had across that entire industry, seeing the rise and fall about how those kinds of decisions were made, especially with the kind of energy that you're able to see with a lot of these actors, it was definitely like a nice piece to see. Since BlackBerry still exists, um, I did go back into one of their uh, manufacturing departments back in 2017, way after their fall, but it's just interesting to see how the rest of that has gone, especially with that kind of a monolithic stature that they had in the short time that they were able to hold on to it, especially in the ever-changing function of the internet. Um, but I would say probably my top three movies of the year would definitely go to, I mean, Guardians Volume 3. I don't... It's weird. I didn't like it as much as everybody else. I don't think it's like one of the best Marvel outings that has gone towards the rest of it, but I can definitely see how this is an incredibly strong film with everything related around Rocket and his entire history and the bond that had to be the bonds that had to be broken and reformed over the course of everybody inside of the Guardians and where that inevitably takes them. I'm definitely glad to see that this was the stamp that James Gunn was able to leave on the part of his Marvel career after they just unceremoniously were like pressure, like pressuring him to change it, which is kind of hilarious since he was one of the best filmmakers inside of that entire cinematic universe. But that's beside the point. Uh, Barbie was easily the biggest surprise to me, as was everybody else. It was the cinematic event in Barbenheimer that gave one of the biggest months of energy that cinemas had seen since the pandemic started and like even before that there weren't as many films i mean for video games the thing for me that harkens back to is definitely doom and animal crossing where these two really different uh but large franchise games were going to be coming out on the same day and instead of battling for supremacy Everybody inside of both communities welcomed each other with open arms, regardless of the content that both games promised, and it created this harmonious section of relaxation and carnage that just, even though they were such opposites, attracted in such a phenomenal way that led to just everybody relating to both of these projects and both these games elevating each other towards that point. And the same thing happened with Barbenheimer to the point where if you, Oppenheimer, for sure, definitely got the uh, better end because Barbie is a lot more universal. It was 
something that anybody could go to see and enjoy regardless of the way that they would be able to go that unless you <laughs> and Oppenheimer was this three hour long biopic on one of the more controversial figures inside of human history especially with what he was able to create inside of one of the most tumultuous times in human history but seeing how both of those were able to harmoniously coincide with each other and elevate both of their experiences to the point where people were legitimately planning days around seeing these two back to back was just like one of my favorite like snapshots inside of this entire year but if I did have to say what my favorite movie of the year was, it would probably be John Wick 4, considering that I was a little taken aback. Like, there were good moments inside of the second and third films of the franchise. I still thought the first one was the best one overall, but then the fourth one comes out and takes every aspect that those three films have been experimenting with and turning it up to 11 and cranking out action scenes and scenarios and comedy and relationships and everything that the other movies had built, even though they were essentially just film reels for stunt performers and action romps to be like some of the best modern CQC gun kata utilitarian force of what John Wick is able to use at his disposal to basically annihilate every other hitman that is coming towards him on any given day. But especially with how the beats, the, the pacing of this movie is so well set to the point where you have these large crescendos of action and then enough of a downtime to just let you catch your breath set yourself up for the next action scene, and then just go on another, like, fucking 20 to 25 minute tear with the rest of the crew. It was just such a phenomenal experience to go through, especially with what the last half hour of that movie was. It was just non-stop chaos, non-stop phenomenal action set pieces, some including being inspired by video games, some being inspired by a lot of the classic action flicks that had come before it. Just all culminating into this probably the best action movie currently in the 2020s for me by far so we're just gonna have to see how the rest of <laughs> this decade goes because at this point the one that they're gonna have to beat is john wick but that's enough for the uh, live action section of it let's let's get back into the animated portion of this podcast um at least for the animated films that i didn't get to see this year um i Noticed too late that Ernest and Celestine's sequel came out, but that was probably because not as many people were talking about it with such revelry and love that they did the first one. Uh, Migration, Elemental, Leo, all of these other pieces that still got people talking about it, but not so much to the point where everybody was going through. I mean, Chicken Run also came out late in the year that I wasn't able to go through and catch. I honestly, I watched the original Chicken Run, but that was probably nearly 15 years ago. It's been crazy how long it's been since I've gone towards the rest of it. To definitely go back and look at all of Ardman Animation's catalog, because I do... I've seen a lot of their movies. Like, I had the VHS tapes for Wallace and Gromit Curse the Were-Rabbit, for A Close Shave, The Wrong Trousers, like, just all of these different animations that they were able to make in the 80s and the 90s and the 2000s. I remember seeing all of these religiously, but I don't think I've revisited 
any of them probably since the Curse of the Were-Rabbit back in 2005. Then Wish, with fucking Disney's anniversary, they could not have picked just a complete... I don't know. It's So now for Wish, same deal. I haven't watched it, but I have not seen... It, it, it's not that the fact that the film apparently is bad, it's just that it's such an incredibly mediocre stamp to the current landscape of Disney between with what everybody has been talking about it, not a single positive thing has left the lips of anybody who has like watched this film. And so unless I'm going to have to do a retrospective on all of Disney's films, there is no way that I can legitimately see myself going back and trying to find the opportunity to watch this because... If you're trying to put a stamp on your legacy for a hundred years and nobody or their mother is going to give you any kind of positive reception for it, then you definitely know that you've done something wrong. Which was hilarious because in the exact opposite fashion, they made an animated film starring Adam Sandler as a lizard who gives positive feedback and life advice to kids... And having that be a stronger film than Disney's anniversary project is a fucking comedy in of itself. Considering that it's just like the same deal. Nobody had any expectations for Leo. But the fact that every single person who has come into this movie saying that, oh, it is a really good and positively affirming film. It gives a lot... It gives a lot of these kids in the film to have the chance to see themselves in a different light and to legitimately challenge themselves to be better and look inwards to try and figure out what the problems are around them in a rapidly evolving world and having the opportunity to give them advice for modern day problems as well as ones that have just been a constant barricade for all kids who have been growing up and looking for affirmation and guidance, and you're telling me that that film is an animated lizard voiced by Adam Sandler. <laughs> Probably one of the biggest surprises towards the rest of it, but I don't know. Crazier things have happened. However, for the films that I actually did see, um, Nimona was definitely a positive surprise seeing that get revitalized and have the opportunity to spread its wings on Netflix and give the animators the opportunity to finish their work and actually have that project see the light of day rather than it just dying in the corner in some storage facility next to Blue Sky. But I would say it was a fine film overall. I would definitely say that the production was definitely middling with the plot progression as well as the pacing. It was a huge world with not enough time to give it the chance to breathe and like see a better scale beyond what we had the opportunity to watch. But at the end of the day, it was enjoyable. A lot... This movie definitely shines in the motion of the action scenes, especially with how fluid they're able to go and be creative with the shape-shifting abilities that one of the main characters have. And seeing the comedy just, like, flip from cute and cuddly to chaotic and disturbing was just a really good sense of whiplash to kind of, like, keep the characters, like, grounded inside of the world. But it was definitely nice to see how this was able to finally see the light of day, and I'm definitely glad to see that they were able to go through and give us the opportunity to watch it, and I can't wait to see what this team does next. And then for the team behind Seth Rogen, who is not, which is not the last time you're going to be able to hear him, his voice, uh, so TMNT, Mutant Mayhem, was a really fun ride. I definitely enjoyed 
this considering that it was just another iteration of the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. I watched the animated series as a kid. Um, at least it was the uh, 2D version that was put out on YTV and Teletoon. I don't think they had... I don't think they had a movie, but I didn't watch the classic, classic 2D animated series. Like, it's been a while since I've jumped back into that. I know that they had a 3D animated series that went out towards the 2010s, and then most recently, there was a very anime-esque style uh, reboot of this entire franchise. That same deal. Haven't had the opportunity to watch all the way through, but they did apparently have a movie which knocked everybody's socks off last year. So... If at all, that's probably the next property for TMNT that I would ever go back and revisit if given the chance. But the energy that they were able to go through, like making these turtles, actual like bludgeoning teenagers leading in towards a world that they know is dangerous for them and they know is going to be incredibly tough for them to be accepted. And having also the twist on Splinter and O'Neill and seeing where the rest of this story is going to go leading into the future definitely has me intrigued for sure it's not tmnt has never been a franchise that has consistently gotten me excited or i don't really have as much of a personal bond towards it even though it was one of the first cartoons that i watched as a kid however i still did have a lot of fun with how they were able to incorporate all of these into the film and i definitely can't wait to see when the next movie is going to come out as for another interesting animated uh, movie that came out this year. So the new Super Mario Bros. movie. I had way too much fun with it. <laughs> I had zero expectations going into this, especially with how they were going to market it. I knew I was just going to like Bowser, and that's how I thought it was going to end, and that was just going to be the extent of my enjoyment with this film. But how they were able to still breathe life into the limited amount of time that they were able to get with all the different parts of Mario's world and quote-unquote cinematic universe that odds are they're going to be creating. It definitely seems like in the 2010s it was comic book adaptations, but now for the 2020s video game adaptations are definitely going to be paving the way for a lot of the ones that are going to be made over the course of the next couple of years. But to be fair, what Illumination Studios was able to do with this property, and thank God because I had... To, my partner got me to fucking watch... Oh, God, what was it? I think it was the second Despicable Me movie. That was just chaos and things that I didn't really need to see. But seeing how Illumination is still able to breathe life into these worlds that have already been around for decades, they did a phenomenal job in bringing these pieces to life and still creating bundles of fun for all ages towards the rest of it. I still do think that arguably the funniest, most fucked up part about this film is that everybody, like, loved Lumen Lee. Like, that was totally <laughs> fine. Like, everybody loved Lumen Lee. Everybody loved the nihilistic... I don't know if it's... It's not a Starmie, but it's one of those, uh... Super Mario Galaxy pieces that have just been imprisoned by Bowser and has been sitting there for so long that everything inside of their own reality has just become nihilistic and they wish for the sweet release of death. There is no escape. Ooh, more meat for the grinder. It was every time uh, that she came on screen was just a riot for everybody involved. Like even with all the clips that I was able to see from the theaters. But then, to top it all off, this was voiced by the co-director's daughter. 
he, he just brought... He, so they were just scratches. They were film or uh, storyboards that they weren't thinking were just going to see the light of day. It was just something that they wanted to have a little bit of fun with. But they brought her in, this young thing, and just had her read these voice lines that she has absolutely no context for. And having that be one of the funniest recurring jokes inside of the entire movie was easily one of the biggest surprises that I had in the entire film. And it, if I had to sum up this entire experience towards any thing inside of this film is that it was more fun than I was expecting to have. So I'm definitely glad to see how this is going to go. And for better or worse, I'm curious to see where the uh, Nintendo Cinematic Universe is going to be carried forward in the future. Now, I kind of wish I was able to go down and see more films at VIF, but the one that I was able to go through and see was they shot The Piano Player. And I'm really liking this new advancement for at least biopic films, considering that if the, the last one that basically comes to mind from last year, well, not 2023, but from 2022, uh, was Flea. And Flea had the opportunity because not only did they have the, a way to rotoscope and essentially have a new dynamic to bring these harrowing stories to life, but it also works very well is that if you just rotoscope and animate and rename, then you could essentially almost interview anybody with the safety of anonymity, especially when it comes to really problematic scenarios and points in history that not a lot of people have seen the light on. And the piano player definitely gives that new style and breathes a lot of new energy and the jazz that was able to be showcased throughout the entire film. Since this mostly goes back into Brazil, uh, inside of one of the leaders of the samba jazz groups, inside of the height of the bossa nova music movement, that was essentially sweeping where almost everybody in North America was listening to Brazilian jazz music. And it's narrated by Jeff Goldblum. It's honestly like one of the better uh, biopics that I'd seen towards the rest of it. I would still like give Blackberry a little bit more of a nod over it, but for ones that are interested in the history of jazz leading on between the Americas, I would definitely give this one a recommendation. And so probably the best non-Japanese animated film that I'd seen like was easily Spider-Verse 2. I mean, there's not really a lot that I can say about Spider-Verse 2 that hasn't already been said. The only negative thing that I can basically say is that it is a mid-quill. So it's not a complete film. We will, hopefully, not by the end of this year. I do not want this movie to come out in 2024. I don't want to put any pressure on the guys that are like trying to get this out because even after everything that came out and even though I love the movie and even though everything revolving around with the new action, the new characters, the new villains, everything that has been building up inside of this franchise, but the fact that as most animation studios go, nobody was having a good time inside of any of these productions and even more specifically that they don't even know what the ending is going to be. They legitimately are concerned because they're expecting it's like oh you know we got to have it up by this date you'll see it by the end of 2024 it's like i really fucking hope not because there is no way that they can do this again for nearly two hours with the limited time that they have i know that because it's a midquel they already started production by the time the movie came out in theaters but you need time you need to just not 
crunch them any harder than you already are. If you want this third film to be as successful as the ones that have come before it, especially for the fact that this is a two-parter and it's going to have a conclusion, the only negative thing, like I've said before, that I can say about this is that I just want them to give the, be given the time to actually have the opportunity to finish this in a way that they would be satisfied with. Because the references, the animation, everything about this film was phenomenal. It's all about how they're going to stick the landing in the future to dictate how these two films will be seen in the future. So now, I mean, we're almost a half hour in, and I think I should probably start talking about uh, anime specifically. So in terms of the anime films that I was able to see this year, there weren't as many as there were in 2022, but at the very least, it was able to be a good enough opportunity to catch up on a few of them. Although, looking at my list, there's basically only three of these four, or three of these seven, are not sequels to pre-existing properties. But I guess we'll get one of those out of the way, which, <laughs> even though I say that my least favorite anime film of the year was the Kaguya Christmas special, I, I, it is in by no way a bad special. It, I really did enjoy it. Everything related about Kaguya-sama Love's War is a phenomenal rom-com, arguably the best in the industry that I've seen. And the way that they were able to go through and adapt the Christmas session as they are, quote-unquote, like getting into the throes of being a couple, it was definitely nice to see a lot of these animated since this was one of the first arcs that I was able to go through when I was reading the manga since, what was it? I believe it was after season one, I ended up starting to read the manga and that was right about halfway through season three was where I started reading it before I ended up going back, seeing how a lot of these were able to go through and especially go through. Oh, oh yeah, I guess one of the biggest things that happened to me this year was that I was able to hold my first panel at Anime Revolution, and I don't know if I'm ever going to be doing that again, but it was definitely a nice experience to at least give myself a little bit of perspective on the people that go through and put on a lot of the programming inside of all the future cons that I'm going to be attending. I mean, I'm trying to get me and my buddies to organize a outing to Otakuthon out of Montreal this year, and I'm really excited to see if we're going to be able to find the time and the budget to make that work, but only time will tell, and I'm really curious to see how the rest of that's going to go. But the Kaguya Christmas special is definitely, like, if you like Kaguya, you're going to like this as well. It's really charming, really well put together. I don't think Kaguya gets any better than Season 3 was able to pull off, but they're still going to be doing a Season 4. I'm really curious to see how that's going to be going over with a lot of the people that have been invested in this series, but only time will tell. Uh, but leading on to number six, which would be Suzume. So it's one of those odd films where there's not really a lot for me to say about it because it wasn't great, it wasn't terrible, it is a middle-of-the-road film for Makoto Shinkai. I definitely thought it was better than Weathering With You. I didn't think it was as good as your name. It was fun, especially to see a main character be that gung-ho and that forward about what she wants. It's like, damn... She's going to go after this college student. It's like, okay, all the power to you. Considering the amount of shit that she had to go through over the course of this film, she deserves anything she wants once she finally gets home. 
there were a few points where you didn't necessarily know, I would say either between the editing and the writing, where how a lot of the systems of spirituality worked inside of this film, also on how a lot of the characters' motivations were a little skewed, especially, like, that fucking white guardian spirit cat was extremely creepy. I mean, yeah, a lot of people were seeing it as an incredibly cute pit, but every single time it was on screen, I was getting chills, because it's like, this is a fucking trickster. But the fact that it did all of this damage, and then is shocked to find that the main character doesn't like the fact that He's been causing all of this chaos throughout Japan. It's kind of like, dude, are you fucking kidding me? I don't know. A co Whatever relationships were broken towards or partway through this movie do get remedied. There was a lot of good like portions of comedy towards the rest of it. I did like the Ghibli references, especially when it came to the kinds of music that they were able to go through and portray in the film. It looks phenomenal like every single comics way film has done beforehand. So... Essentially, if you like Makoto Shinkai and you like Comics Wave and you still haven't seen this movie, I don't really know what to tell you because odds are you've probably already seen it, but would I wholeheartedly recommend it? I wouldn't think so. I would probably go recommend more of Makoto Shinkai's earlier works, but this was still a passable film. Uh, but leading on to a film which I had no real idea on what essentially it was until like the last five minutes would have definitely been Psychopath's Providence. This came out later in the year. Psychopaths as a franchise has been so all over the place ever since the conclusion of the first season and the first film. Controversial is not really the way to put it, but where a lot of people just have conflicting thoughts about everywhere this franchise has gone over the past couple of, well, I was about to say years, but it's been over a decade since the first season came out. But where it's kind of gone is I like parts of it, but now it's not so much of a thinking piece as the first season was, it is more now just like a cool sci-fi action romp that comes around every now and again. And I do still enjoy that because I do like the cyberpunk. I do like the futuristic action aesthetics that all of these go into. Providence film was no exception. Although it's really interesting to see where this kind of lands in the timeline. I It had been long enough since I had seen Psychopaths 3 that I completely had forgotten where Akane was in the over the course of this entire timeline. But Providence is a, not necessarily a midquel, but it is something that is placed between, what is it? So it's, you have Psychopaths 1, the movie Psychopaths 2, the three Psychopaths OVAs, the other Psychopaths film, now, another Psychopaths film here, which is Providence, and then Psychopaths 3 for the entire timeline. Because in the entirety of season 3, Akane is barely mentioned only as this stoic figure that has been locked up for an, a crime that we have no idea the basis of. And this film will give you the basis of that crime. And that is... That was the biggest surprise for me towards the rest of it, because it was still a phenomenal action flick. I just want Kogami and Akane to be happy together. I think it's those two were probably one of the earliest chips that I ever had inside of anime, period. And they... 
Like, Akane wants to stop Kogami from doing bad things, but Kogami is always going to be the stoic. Sometimes you gotta do bad things in a bad world to stop the bigger bads from committing more bad, and it's like, oh, I'm still gonna stop you. And, and, man, if they were on the same team together, if they were, you know, a little more closer to one another to stop the other from doing bad things, it's like, oh, man, what, I wonder what, what happened between there. It's, it's, I don't know. They're usually one of my favorite ships. I was really glad to see them have at least a little bit more opportunities to see each other in this film. And I do think, if anything, Psychopaths is either going to have like a... Uh, it's like it's really tough to say. Like either a 12 episode, like 10 to 12 episode final season or one more final film, I would say. Because there, it's been so long that I can't remember if there was so much of a finality inside of season three. But I don't know. Only time will tell. I need to definitely get off of this. But then leading forward, I didn't really know where to place this. But considering it's not long enough to be an anime and not long enough to be a film, I definitely just put the Sound Euphonium Mobiers to settle up onto this list because it's right in the middle of the pack. It's one of those where... It's been such a long time since I've seen this cast come back, and every time they do, for me, there's just a sense of joy to go through, because I, the charm and the bravado of this cast that consistently, like, brings back all of these joyous feelings towards me is something that definitely can't be understated. I really love the majority of the characters inside of the show. I love their dynamics. I love their ships. I love their feedback. I love their conflict. You don't get to listen to as much music inside of this by comparison it's definitely like trying to pick itself from where it left off and kind of set up for what the next season of sound euphonium is going to be and as a polite little bridge between the rest of this especially with the tragedy that happened years before including with some of the people that were part of this production i'm glad to see they're finding their way back onto their feet and still having an opportunity to finish off this story and a little more controversial i guess because this is probably my third favorite anime film of the year uh, which is probably going to be getting a lot more awards and a lot more recognition. But to be fair, the more I think about it and the more I settle, the more I tend to like this. And that's especially How Do You Live? And considering I talked about it at length on one of my previous videos, it's just how Miyazaki was able to construct these messages that he's like trying to leave behind with bits and pieces of all of his previous works enveloped into one specific film where he definitely feels like he's running out of time, because if he does another film in the same time that it took him to make this one, then he is going to be in his 90s, if he makes it that long. And I really don't want him to start another film and then pass away at his desk so we have another dream machine scenario. And even though he had a lot more time than Satoshi Kon, it's still troubling to kind of like see where he's going to because he's just going to work until he dies but if this was his last film that he will ever be able to make in front of a large audience then i do think it is a satisfying enough to conclusion to leave behind inside of his legacy and for me probably the biggest surprise film of this year would definitely go down to blue giant and so this is done by director Yuzuru Tachikawa. And, like, this dude has done directing jobs from Mob Psycho 100. He's done Death Parade. He's done Case Closed. Like, he's gone a phenomenal resume, like, towards his back. And 
for all of that to accumulate inside of this one film, which I've been working with a guy, Alex, who's a huge fan of jazz inside of this recipe. And when he comes back, I am totally going to be recommending this towards him since the energy that this jazz has been able to imbue itself in the time and the effort and the strength and the drive that all of the characters inside of this film needed to perform and exceed all expectations that anybody had any reason and beyond any semblance of a doubt and beyond any shadow of a doubt that they would be able to succeed in this world that is niche and potentially dying out but still have that kind of enthusiasm and passion towards this specific kind of work is just awe-inspiring. Especially, I will admit, one of the only negative things that I have to say, this is a production that started during COVID, and there wasn't as much time that they could have given towards these specific performance scenes. So you will see a lot of jumps between 3D character models and 2D character models, but those 2D sequences in the middle of these performances are electrifying. It is one of... It's a feeling that I haven't felt since watching Whiplash years and years ago. And through that kind of raw power that these characters are able to imbue, regardless of the experience that they are lacking amongst their peers, the drive that they show will have... will leave you inspired, to say the least. But now the last film of the year that I ended up seeing, and it was probably one of the only other films besides How Do You Live that I had any expectations for. And it was more just the grading weight and expectation and overall disappointment into elation on how I was able to even see this film in the first place. Because it came out early, early this year. And so I was expecting, it's like, okay, like this was the first quarter of the year. So odds are this will like come over and we'll have the opportunity to see it in theaters. I mean, I don't want to knock anything about Blue Giant, but Blue Giant is a much more like niche film for based on a manga that not a lot of people have read and that was able to get a limited screening inside of theaters over in Canada. Somehow this did not. And it was able to premiere at, I believe it was Anime Expo, and so I'm like, okay, so it had its North American debut. I'm still looking on the website, still looking on the website, still looking on the websites, like, every two weeks to see if there was any announcement that we were ever going to be getting any chance to see this film in theaters. And when it came, and it went, and I could not find it anywhere, and... Nobody was picking it up for Canada. Nobody was letting it go. And consistently, and then like, and then it just pops up on uh, a torrenting site uh, towards the end of the year. I'm like, God damn it. Like, man, is this really how I'm going to enjoy this? This is probably going to be my favorite of the year regardless. But where it's like, if the only negative thing that I can say about this movie is that I didn't get to experience it in theaters. Because holy fuck... Gridman Universe lived up to all of the hype and expectations that I had for it and more. Because, like, cinematic universes have definitely been kind of grating, especially with how a lot of the comic book stuff has been going there towards the rest of it. But if you're talking about, like, anime crossover events, especially between franchises, like, you see people with Precure, you see people with Simple Gear, 
having any opportunity of a franchise of characters to meet together in the same universe at the same time and have interactions that you would have only dreamed about in contrast is definitely like one of the favorite experiences that you can see. I mean, hell, like Spider-Verse, for sure. Like that was something that like you would have loved to see and could only dream of. But seeing what Gridman was able to do, having them literally gatai and combine in literally every single potential combination that you would have been able to see between the different characters, the different mechas, the different weapons, the different sections, the different pieces of Gridman that you were able to at least switch and swap between like you were playing with like one of your favorite action figures as a kid bringing back all of the classic music from both of these phenomenal series. It's definitely like a sense of childlike wonder that I rarely get with any franchise nowadays. And the fact that Gridman Universe was still able to take that energy and that expectation and that excitement that I was hoping to see for the entirety of this year and then deliver it with such finesse and passion and bombast that I was legit I, I was I couldn't stay seated like this would have been a little bit awkward and I would have just been like gyrating and like I would have just been vibrating in my seat the entire time if I was in the theaters I would have been losing my mind so for sure like this would have been my this is definitely like my favorite anime film of the year and for anybody that was like a fan of either Power Rangers or Tokusatsu or just like classic Mecha fighting in general, I would definitely recommend anybody go watch uh, Gridman and Dinozenon. So now when we get to television, there were definitely a few things that I missed towards the rest of the year. So Succession, I still have not seen. I've heard nothing but good things. I do hear that there's a dip in the middle seasons, but seeing how everybody was satisfied about the final season that came out, it's definitely one that's going to be put on the list, and I will get to it eventually. Uh, Reservation Dogs has definitely been, like, making the rounds and has been picking up a couple of awards at the Emmys, and I was kind of curious about the first season that came through, but now I'm definitely going to have to, like, put that further up on the priorities and see how the rest of that goes. <laughs> Gen V, same deal. I have only watched the first season of The Boys. I do need to get back on that train, considering that it is getting better and better as the seasons have gone on, and I'm really curious to see how the rest of that goes. Letterkenny, I still need to watch. It came out back on Christmas Day, and it is the final season of Letterkenny, and there have been so many days that I'm just like, okay, this is the day that I'm just going to just enjoy and consume Letterkenny. There's not a lot of episodes, but this is the day that I'm going to appreciate it and absorb it and then just except that this is the final Letterkenny season, and I keep putting it off, and I say I'm going to do this tomorrow, but only time will tell to kind of, like, see how I'm going to be able to make that happen. Um, and then probably the show that got the most talked about it, especially in an animation standpoint, would have definitely been um, Adventure Time's Fiona and Cake. And same deal, I wasn't able to catch that, even though technically I could have gone in without seeing as much of Adventure Time as would be necessary. Seeing that everybody was a fan about how it was able to conclude in such a way, with like the fact that it's an open and closed story, 
definitely had me interested, so I'm going to have to wait and see how that happens. Back to live action, at least for the ones that I ended up seeing. Uh, I watched the first season of Only Murders in the Building with my partner, and I thought it was fine. Not really too much to write home about. There's a second season already... The, the second season finished this year, with apparently a third on the way, so I don't really know what else to say about that, but only, I, I don't know, if, if she really pressures me, I guess I'll have to go through and keep watching it, but uh, it, I don't know, it, it just wasn't really my thing. Uh, Ahsoka really was Star Wars Rebels season five or six for a lot of people. It's one of the only pieces of Star Wars that I haven't been able to see, because I did go back and rewatch Clone Wars, but so uh, Rebels was only something that I know through lore videos, and that was definitely something that I went back. It's like, after the first episode came out, it's just, okay, let's uh, watch about an hour of lore videos to kind of, like, catch me up on who a lot of these characters are, because odds are they're going to be the ones that I'm going to be watching. It was cool to see those callbacks, even though I wasn't... <laughs> it definitely wasn't for me. And it's cool to see the setup of the next big bad of the Star Wars universe. However, I really didn't... It really just wasn't that much of an impact for me, for sure. I I did... I did like the Clone Wars episode. I did like how they were able to incorporate that into the story, but outside of it, there was just a lot of stuff between pacing, between... There not being a lot of just character emotion being portrayed inside of the show, which is definitely why I was glad to see Ezra at the end, but I don't know. It was just, it was fine. It, it, it was not great. Kind of the same deal with Mando. Uh, the third season of Mando that came out this year, it kind of came and went. I, it, it took me a while to realize it's like, what else came out in 2023? Oh yeah, Mando season three. It was cool to be brought back and see Mandalore again inside of this universe. And it was fine. They did... The, the the biggest thing to me is that they were bringing back pieces of Star Wars The Force Unleashed. So if Starkiller has the opportunity to potentially be now inside of Filoni's uh, universe, that would be kind of crazy. Especially with where it's kind of like, look, the Force powers are getting crazy. But you know it would be crazier to see like this kind of a character over the course of Star Wars? Which, to be fair, he would be pretty old right about now. However... <laughs> I would like to see that happen. Um, I did get to go see and watch the first season of The Bear. I know the second scene isn't out. I haven't jumped into it just yet, but the first season of The Bear is phenomenal. It is stressful. It is fast-paced. It is very much akin to something like, say, Uncut Gems, or it does get you invested in the struggles of how these chefs are going to be able to revitalize this shop. But it is, as the kitchen is incredibly stressful to go through the the environment of a kitchen is so uniquely passionate and stifling and claustrophobic knowing that you are consistently on the clock trying to get all of these things done to the best of your ability like depending on small spaces incredibly dangerous work environments, but you still have to get all this done because food is essential, especially towards all of these people who just treat the food with such finesse and care. And it's like, I'll definitely get to it. Season two apparently is also just because the first, but at the very least, if it's anything to look forward to, like based on how the first season went, I'm really excited to see the rest of that go. But for a second season that I did watch, Shorzy 
finally got me to bite the bullet and get a jersey. I I loved this second season of Shorzy. It was a little shocking to see how much they skipped in the first episode, but kind of seeing where the team is at now and what they had to put up at stake and what is going to be leading up towards the future because I was kind of curious to see, like, what exactly do they do? How far can they take the show for the conflicts that they have to keep, like, reintroducing to at least make sure that these guys have someone to fight? But considering that Letterkenny is now over and Shorzy is going to be, like, heading into its third season, I am totally accepted. I have now totally accepted Shorzy as, like, the frontrunner for what Jared Kiso and his team are able to do. And even though Letterkenny is now completed... With Shorzy leading into its third season, I am still just as excited and really glad to see that he's able to, even with a similar story, give it a unique enough twist to have people invested and enjoying it for a lot of the same reasons that Letterkenny was able to make us fall in love with in the first place. Uh, the Last of Us, phenomenal season of television. Seeing how they were able to condense that first game into a television series and create it with such finesse and care and make it weekly viewing just as they were able to do with House of the Dragon. Oh fuck, House of the Dragon also came out. I would say both of them are on the same quality. I would probably put House of the Dragon above The Last of Us, but just slightly. However, seeing these two shows like with The Last of Us, I knew the major plot points because over the past 10 years, I guess, through cultural and internet osmosis, I know all the big points that happen inside of the stories of both the first and the second game. But they did a phenomenal job incorporating everything that story was able to tell and everything that first game was able to accomplish into this one season of television. I do think they could have made the last episode a little longer, and regardless, I'm really curious to see, because I know that the second game is controversial. So now I'm curious to see how that controversy is going to be carried forward into a second season of television. Because it is still a great game, but how loud are the voices of controversy going to be in comparison to the voices of genuine enthusiasm and praise? Only time will tell. Uh, Ted Lasso's third and final season. Uh, absolutely loved it. There was... An episode or two where in the middle it was kind of losing uh, track and a little bit of a pace, especially with a couple of the relationships that were going towards the rest of it. But the beginning and end of this season, especially with what they were able to do with Ted and the relationships that he's cultivated and the strength of the character that he's been able to imbue with everybody revolved inside of that football club and the franchise. One of the reasons why I wasn't able to go through and watch as much anime this year, at least with my partner, was that she really hated Ted in the first few episodes. And I knew that was going to be the case. She fucking hated him with that veil of positivity that you know that there's a lot of stressful and challenging things that he's going through with his personal life, but the veneer and the just face that he has to put on inside of a world where almost everybody hates him and everybody wants him to fail. The fact that he's able to bring them onto his side with his infectious optimism was like one of my favorite parts of the entire series. And just having everybody's lives around him be better for it. So in that case, I was able to like watch season three twice this year. And it's easily, like, one of my favorite shows of television in the past decade. But the one that gets me 
I'm most excited to see where they're probably going to be able to conclude it uh, is going to be Andor, which was easily, in terms of live action, my favorite television series this year. It took us into a different direction inside of the Star Wars universe that I didn't think was going to be compelling or exciting, especially for a character whose fate we already know is sealed because of Rogue One. But what they were able to accomplish with Ferrix and planets that weren't Tatooine and, I mean, Coruscant wasn't involved, but all of these planets in a galaxy far, far away, a galaxy with so many options and peoples and cultures and events and things that could be brought forward, even though it was just a handful of planets that we had never even heard of before, the drama and the bureaucracy that you would have expected to be just a snail's pace and boring and uninteresting brings you into one of the tightest written and most compelling Star Wars stories inside of the entire franchise. And so I'm not going to spoil too much about the rest of it, so just go and give Andor a watch if you haven't already. I understand, yes, this is technically a Star Wars story set in the Star Wars universe, but it is far from any of the Jedi plot points that has been a consistent plot thread towards the rest of this. This is people trying to fight against an unjust and corrupt system that is slowly infecting the galaxy in a matter that not many people are ready for. And how this is able to sow the seeds of rebellion in some of its earliest forms, it is definitely a sight to behold. Now, as for animated series that came out over here, just for continuity's sake, so I can, like, have an even list later, uh, I'm gonna put Agretzko Season 5 on this, because it's like, yes, I know it's an anime, but considering what it was able to do with Netflix and, like, how many people are involved inside of the North American side of things. I'm just going to put it on this list. I swear, I know this is anime. This is going to come back later. But I did not like it as much by comparison. It's kind of worn out its welcome. I really did enjoy the, the second and third seasons of Gretzko, but the last two haven't really given me a lot to do in terms of promise and like, where the main relationship is going to go. Like, I think they're finally at that point, but they just... I don't know. It's it's tumultuous. It's a trying time to just try and get any of these guys out the door, but I don't know. It's... I didn't necessarily like this season as much. Invincible is also kind of like an odd one because we literally only got half of the second season out in 2024, and I'm really curious to see, like, if the fourth episode is anything to go off of leading on to what the conflict is going to be in the last half of the season. I'm still extremely excited. I did finally get around to Castlevania Nocturne, which, by all accounts, everybody was saying that it wasn't as good as the previous season. It wasn't a return to form. It wasn't that good. It's only carried by, like, decent animation, but there's not really a lot of positive things to say about it. I completely disagree towards the rest. I, like, this was a better considering that it did have a lot more time, it was definitely a better introduction to what the rest of the series is going to be. The first half, for sure, was kind of expected and not really well-paced. You're kind of given Richter as this really young upstart who wants to prove that he's a good vampire hunter, and he's a good vampire hunter, but it's just, 
he's not as witty and his group dynamic isn't as well fleshed out as Sypha and Hector and Alucard, but they're still able to imbue a lot of darkness and chaos inside of this world that we haven't necessarily seen before because it is of a different time. It's more the world around it and the ideas that they're setting up towards the future seasons and the new the new characters and old characters that have been reintroduced and brought back to kind of see where the rest of the story is going to go. It has gotten me in more invested and excited than the first season of Castlevania was able to do, which is definitely a little bit unfair considering how late the group dynamic is introduced inside of the first season of Castlevania, but at the very least this show was able to get me invested and excited about the new characters that were going to be following towards the rest of this, especially with the dynamics and the events that happened. And honestly, I just really can't wait to see what they're going to be able to do for season two. Um, and then in terms of manga that I read this year, uh, the ones that are consistent that have been going through towards the rest of it, it's kind of like romance is like a decent half of what I've been reading throughout the most of this year, but so I mean, the fragrant flower blooms with dignity. It's a this is the pure concentrated shoujo sugary goodness that everybody like looks for like every towards the It's tough considering the distributor that has gotten hold of the rights to this, so it's a lot more difficult to find new chapters of this as they get released. But I do believe that it is one of my favorite uh, romance manga that I've just been reading as of late. And I would definitely recommend anybody giving it a watch if that's the specific piece that you've been trying to look for. Uh, still reading Chainsaw Man Part 2. Uh, it's been really fun to see where a lot of these stories have gone, especially with the prophecies and the chaos that is going through. The chapters that I'm reading now are finally hitting that point where shit's hitting the fan and there's going to be a lot more action where that came from. We did end up hearing that we are going to be getting a... Reze arc film for the Chainsaw Man anime that I don't know if it's going to be coming out this year or early 2025. I just want MAPPA, especially with how shittily they've been treated throughout this entire year in between Vinland Saga, in between JJK, in between Attack on Titan. Like, damn, give these fuckers a rest because they deserve it. Uh, smoking Behind the Supermarket, really good seinen romance quote-unquote like it's a i'm trying to remember the ages i think it's like early 40s and a late 20s are basically still hanging out behind this supermarket just having good chats about life and trying to figure out where their place is and how they're going to be able to like find a part of their lives that'll make them happier than they are now and this one definitely is comes out a lot less frequently since it's either a monthly or a bi-monthly manga but Still, easily one of my favorites that I've been going through, and it's a bundle of joy every single time a new chapter is able to come out. Don to Don, we're getting an anime. It's so good. It's easily, like, my favorite shonen manga that's coming out towards the rest of it. Like, I haven't jumped back into My Hero in about 30, 40 weeks. So the fact that Don to Don is the one that has been, like, going through and just pumping pure adrenaline and shonen fight energy into like what we've been able to see over the past year. I'm really glad to see that Sayasara was able to get the opportunity to have the chance to adapt this, and I really can't wait to see where the rest of that goes. Um, in terms of another manga that I've been reading that also has been getting an adaptation, Sports Romance is a very rare 
thing to be done right, but when it's done right between Chihaya Furu, between Baby Steps, and now the fact that Blue Box is going to have the opportunity to get adapted and show the kind of dynamics that we're able to go through and see in here, I legitimately can't wait to see how the rest of that goes, because I love all of the characters that are invested in this. I want to see these ships sail. I want to see these people find happiness, not with the people that they think that they want, but with the ones that they actually need. And we are currently in this part of the manga where the romance is now taking a backseat to the legitimate pieces in the drama of the sports that each respective character is going to go and fight for. And I am really excited to see where the rest of this is going to be going into 2024. And then the final manga that I was able to go through and start this year, considering that after Pride of Orange came out, it, God, I can't even remember if it was last year or 2021, now that we have a legitimate hockey manga in publication, it's getting me excited. Uh, Dogs Red is written by Satoru Noto, who was the same dude that did Golden Kamui, and it's kind of like a rebuild, remake of one of his first serialized manga, which is Supina Marada, and that was the same basic plot, but he wasn't able to complete the story. He had to end it unceremoniously since it wasn't getting the numbers that he needed, and so he shelved it, and now with the success and the notoriety that he's gotten throughout Golden Kamui, he is now having the opportunity to rebuild and recreate this Hokkaido hockey epic. And I am legitimately excited to see how the rest of that goes. Because if in the coming years that this gets popular enough and this has the opportunity to go through and we will finally get a good hockey anime, I'm fucking excited. Although not necessarily like to like propped on uh, Japan's hockey ambitions because I did check through um, Division A after uh, the World Juniors. Uh, real tragic to see Canada go out in the quarterfinals, but I was like, ooh, what's, but what's happening in Japan? Uh, Kazakhstan was able to win the Division A tournament, and now they're going to be inside of uh, the next World Juniors coming out next year. What about Japan? They didn't win a single game inside of Division A. They were at the bottom of the divisions. Like, oh my god, no. It's, it's so far off. Considering the, the success that Japan was able to get inside of the World Cup, but they're not making as good enough strides in the world of hockey. That's definitely a little tragic, to say the least. And now to conclude with the final list of the episode, we do have, for me in particular, my top 23 anime of 2023. Except there is a little bit of a caveat, especially with how I was able to put a Gretzko in the quote-unquote uh, Western TV section, but that's beside the point. I'm just trying to get this relatively even because I did watch more than 23 shows this year and I had to narrow it down somewhat so at the very least these are the big ones that I wasn't able to see throughout the year so this is so that's why they none of these are on this list so I mean Golden Kamui got a new season this year I once that series is done and they are announcing the final season, I am so going to be jumping into this because with how the last two seasons have gone and all the positivity that has been like imbued inside of this chaos that I keep hearing about, especially with all of the events that like happen inside of this, it just keeps piquing my interest more and more. So once I know that the anime is concluding 
that is when I'm going to, like, finally jump on the Golden Cavalry train. Uh, but the same can't be said for Tokyo Revengers. I don't think I'm ever going to have the opportunity to, like, get invested or get interested in this. It really does not seem like it's up my alley. It's I, I did watch The Warriors way back when, but even then, I don't think it's even close to there. Why the fuck are all these gangs middle schoolers? Um, I have no fucking idea. Uh, Bungo Stray Dogs had a new big season come out this year. Kind of the same deal. I watched the first season way back when, but it didn't necessarily get me too invested to the point where I wanted to go and continue with the series and watch the movie. So I don't think I'm ever going to get back onto this. And then Mushoku Tensei's new season is definitely, like, it would it will take a lot for me to go and watch this series. Yes, I, I'm sounding like a broken record. I said this last year. I mean... The animation is apparently phenomenal, the world building is excellent, the side characters are really well informed and complex and have a lot of decent conflict that goes out towards the rest of it. The fact that the second season, or whatever season you want to call it this year, was about Rudy's erectile dysfunction is probably the biggest turnoff and anti-recommendation that you could ever give to me towards the rest of it. Yeah, just start watching it now. I swear it gets good. Dude gets erectile dysfunction and fucking hates everybody. It's like, oh, great, that's a, that's it, that, that's really good. That's a phenomenal piece. Uh, but it looks good. It's like, okay, yeah, no, but there's going to be shows on this list that also look good. And I didn't like them at all. So it's definitely not one of my priorities, as I will get into later. Um, but shows that ended up starting this year that I unfortunately didn't get to. Uh, Buddy Daddy's, I think it was just at the time I was already watching Spy Family and I didn't really need feel the need to watch this even though nothing but good things have been said about this show and apparently like you could call it a conclusion and so it would be like a really nice watch to go through on a raining day that's like completely done and concluded and I think it's only like 11 or 12 episodes so only time will tell uh, Hell's Paradise uh, Shonen Seinen I guess because there's a lot more killing than expected but there's a lot of killing in Shonen so the power system is fine the animation is good at points mappa i know is doing this so that was another fucking tick to add to the death list um like it was it was another one of those where it's like okay well it's a shonen and i've seen all these before and you're telling me it's good but it's a good shonen doesn't mean it'll be like as good as the greats that i've like seen a lot more before so it's just a lot more difficult to get into those ones specifically, so it just wasn't as much of a priority. Uh, Tomo-chan is a girl. I had read the manga consistently, and to me, watching the clip highlights on YouTube was just as good enough of an experience to kind of like see how the characters were in motion. The jokes were still as funny as they were in the comic. Everything else was lining up. If you asked me, it's like, hey, should I read the manga or should I watch the anime? I would just say, because it's a more complete package, go watch the anime. Actually seeing those jokes being translated in the moment and seeing them in motion, I honestly would say that they're probably a lot better. But same deal, because I've read the entire story already, it wasn't too much of a priority for me to go and watch it. Um, I started the first couple of episodes of Shangri-La Frontier, I will get to the rest of it eventually, especially considering that it's also airing in this season. But taking Let Me Solo Her and turning him into an anime protagonist that loves fucking broken down games and all of the chaos and all of the missions that he goes through and ensues, and it's like, he's not perfect, he fails continuously, he gets back up, and he has the drive because he is really passionate about the games that he plays. 
yeah, it's a good time. And then probably the biggest miss that I didn't get to because there was so much talk about it going on, but I didn't, it like, and then everybody and their mother at the end of the year is saying it's one of the best shows of the year. I, but then also because we don't know when we're going to get a second season and the story itself isn't completed, but Heavenly Delusion is probably going to be my biggest miss of the year, considering that nobody has any negative things to say about it besides the fact that it does get a little weird, especially with the odd relationships and the friendships that are happening between a lot of these main characters with all the weird shit going on in the background. How they feel about each other is just as convoluted and as conflicting as anything else that has happened in the series, but... The world building, the animation, the conflict, the potential horrors and thrillers that we see leading into the future has got me more than enough of a reason to get invested inside of this. So, the last two shows that I want to talk about before I get to these final 23, because these two shows I only excluded because this would have made, this is a lot easier for me to make the list into 23, but in hindsight, these two shows would have probably taken the two of the top three spots on my list. And so that's going to be Apothecary Diaries and Freyrin After the Funeral, Freyrin Beyond Journey's End, whichever one you want to call it. I guess we'll get Freyrin out of the way first. This is everything that I wanted from an adaptation and more. Freyrin is one of those series where it is an adaptation that expands and enhances its source material beyond that point. It looks gorgeous. They have built out the world in the same way that the manga was able to go through and do so for the past couple of years. The fights that were only a handful of pages long have now been expanded into full several minute long conflicts and battles that have just, that knock most of the fights that we've seen inside of this year out of the water. They are breathtaking sequences to behold and the fact that that is on top of the fact that they were able to go through and adapt and even expand on the beauty that was already put on the page and bring it over to the big screen there's not a lot else that i can say just that i've loved freerun ever since this manga has been able to come out back in 2020 and the fact that this adaptation is given the proper polish and passion that it deserves makes me all kinds of happy uh, the bigger surprise to me, though, definitely would have been Apothecary Diaries, because I had no real expectations leading into this. It was a novel that is being adapted towards the rest of this inside of a Chinese period in history. But Jinshi and Mao Mao are probably my favorite duo in this entire year. The way that they bounce off of each other, the way that they're able to go through and exploit the other for either time or resources or management or anything else that they need. They're not a couple, but you could totally describe these two as a power couple, especially with the kind of influence that they both have on the inside of the palace of one of of, of China's like greatest houses and seats of power inside of the entire country. And seeing the way Mao Mao is able to interact with the world that she knows is unfair, that she knows is discriminatory against women, and knows that they all just view her as something, as a piece, not really a, something that is 
of a piece of life that is valued, but just something that could be so easily snuffed out and thrown away if they even look or inconvenience somebody in such a wrong case. And how she is able to warp those perspectives into a source of power for her and to live a life that she wants to live, it was nothing short of exceptional. And it is easily, like, one of my favorite shows of the year. However, with the top 23 shows that I watched this year, the one at the very fucking bottom is easily going to be Demon Slayer's third season, which... You can call me contrarian. You can call me a hater. You can call me all these things. Oh, don't worry. I am. But it has been a while since... Like, probably since Promised Neverland Season 2 that I have been thrown off of a show so much. But for Promised Neverland, it was a greater fall because I loved the first season. And the second season was just a much greater descent into Madness and Chaos. Demon Slayer, I didn't have as much of a fall. I... Liked the first season. I liked the movie. The second season exacerbated a lot of the problems that I had in the initial parts, which is mostly that I don't give a fuck about any of the characters or any of the conflicts that they're going through. Just none of it. It is easily one of the best-looking shows of the year. Euphotable is not going to be dropping the ball on any parts of their production for sure, but it's just the shonen battle formula that they feel that they're trying to elevate is just not working out in this semblance. And yes, it looks cool. Yes, arguably it could. Actually, no. This, this is the biggest problem. Because in all of the fights that happened inside of this season, none of them were exceptional. None of them were breathtaking. None of them really like took you into the moment like a fight did from any other season or movie that came before it. And so the fact that the action wasn't as bombastic the characters had to pick up a little bit of that slack but there are no characters to begin with none of these characters are fun none of these characters are interesting sure Boarboy boy inosuke has a lot of chaos and a lot of energy to go and bounce off the rest of the crew but none of the crew is interesting enough to carry the show in their own right and the two hashiras that we ended up getting this year were some of the most bland and boring pillars that you could have seen inside of what is supposed to be the strongest swordsman in the rest of it. Their quote-unquote backstories and gimmicks left none to the imagination to the point where they were just so bland and flat. And so they were consistently dragging out flashbacks and episodes for uninteresting characters that you did not give a fuck about. And then the final episode being a double length turning all the rules of this show on its head for a surprise reveal that legitimately got me angry. It's like, like, I did not care about the rules or the system or the characters, but at the very least, they were consistent. The fact that they are setting up a final battle to the point where they are going to disregard everything that has happened beforehand and then turning Nezuko... I pray to God that they give Nezuko speaking lines in the next season where she is actually able to form complete sentences like a proper adult that she is. But the f but if they're just going to, like, give her that moment and then having their cake and eating it too by just being this childlike walking MacGuffin for the rest of the series is just so fucking asinine and stupid. 
Like, I'll watch this with my buddies when I go over to their place, but there is no real reason for me to continue the story at all. I will watch the highlights. I will watch the inevitable potential best fight of the year whenever they have the opportunity to go through and revisit it, but wow has it been a while since a show has been able to so succinctly throw me off of the bandwagon and lose any investment that I had in the show. Uh, I guess, oh boy. I mean, after that, for a show that I wasn't as passionate about, but I don't know, I didn't hate it as much, would have definitely been Isekai Bending Machine. Uh, my partner recommended this. She really liked the design and the characters, and I did like the knowledge and the depth of the opportunities that you could have for vending machines, especially ones that come out of Japan. And as an isekai, it was fine. I'm not an isekai guy, but judging how the last the last half of the show, they were definitely running out of ideas, and then it turned into just a standard fantasy guild we need to go and fight to acquire currency and coins. But the stuff that happened like outside of it, yeah, just not as much intrigued me as it did in the first half. So that back half definitely kind of did take away from it a bit. Uh, the Ancient Magus Bride second season uh, had two different cores throughout the course of the year. I think it could have just been 16 episodes max, maybe even 12. It was in the message that they were trying to give was essentially one that you could read from the first time the main character was introduced. And it was cool to go back because the reason why I liked the series so much in the first place was definitely just the Gaelic and the European mythologies that they were able to go through and influence because it just sounds so much cooler. Like, Greek, European, Gaelic, all of these different mythologies that were able to be born inside of those sections, even with Christianity being, like, just south of all of that, they had probably the best sets of, like, fantasies and magic systems and everything that was able to be related to those kinds of spirits and gods that they all had to revere in some way, shape, or form. That's what I really do like about Magus Bride whenever I come back in the show. But the build-up and the conflict and the stories which are going to be continued on into a new season was essentially one where you knew where it was going to end from the first episode, and the fact that it took you 24 episodes to get there definitely made it a bit more of a slog. Um, giving Megumane her own show pleased a lot of people. I don't think I was one of them. It was fine. The explosions and the way that she was able to, like, fall in love with that kind of magic. You had already seen the bits and pieces. This Like, Konosuba had already given you the story beats on why these things had happened. But they needed something to fill in the time between the film and the third season that was inevitably going to come out. And this... I don't... Like, I'm trying to remember a specific explosion that I would have remembered, which maybe was the final explosion that she did, but outside of that, it was just more... Like, it was more Kotosuba, but it wasn't even Kotosuba. It was just Megamine. And Megamine, in a vacuum, is just not that fun to watch, at least for me, because I know people love her chaotic gremlin energy, but if it's just her and her specific brand of chaos and comedy... It's not really one that I would go through entirely. This is definitely one of the many shows that I've that I've seen, especially like going towards now, is that why can't you just do short 
stories. Like, why can't you just make episodes like this and they're only like 10 to 12 minutes long? I really feel like I would have liked this show a lot more if they were put back, put down into like bite-sized chunks. And then at the very least, you could go through and like have something to fill in the gaps for 12 weeks and then like have your kick into YouTube. But I don't know. It's definitely something that wasn't really as entertaining to me as it was to a lot of people. But eh, I'm going to be enjoying the third season anyways. Uh, but for the second season of Spy Family, it was the same deal. I thought it was fine. Everybody was, because I've already read the manga up until the end of this arc, and it has been a while since I've uh, gone back and read the manga for quite a bit. I, I do believe that the last chapter I read was fucking, like, Becky's quote-unquote seduction, and I'm like, Jesus, fuck, get me out of here. But, yeah, I am glad that this was the arc that Yor was able to get a little more action by comparison, and the fights were pretty well choreographed and well set up, but I don't really like this series as much as I previously did. And the, and the family dynamic is charming, but it is that Saturday morning cartoon spiel where you are not going to get any progress in this on top of the fact that it's a shonen jump property. It's, we, I, I, I've gone, we've gone through as many gimmicks and as many scenarios as these characters can muster. And I don't think it's going to get any funnier or any more heartfelt because you probably got all of those plot beats in the first 25 episodes, let alone the first 48. So yeah, it was fine. Uh, so the, people would be asking me why I put Horamiya season two up above this. Um, I don't know. I, I think that was definitely, it was one of the first shows that I ended up watching with my partner and just the dynamic of how those two interacted considering where watching Horamiya season one when I was single versus watching Horamiya's second season when I was in a relationship brought about so much more comedy and chaos and just hilarity especially with just seeing how Miyamura has to deal with Hori to such a ridiculous degree and is chastised for the smallest infractions and that he's the problem with the relationship and it's just like oh man I really hope I'm not going to be feeling too connected to this towards the rest of the relationship because holy fuck this is it's man I feel you dude I have never felt more connected to an anime character in a long time than I have with you inside of this relationship but fucking good luck on you man holy shit Although characters that I definitely haven't felt the connection... Well, actually, no. They do play a bit of golf. Uh, I did appreciate the chaos of the Birdie Wings first season a lot more than I did the more rudimentary uh, course that they took inside of the second season. Uh, considering that there's not a lot else that they can do if they took out the mafioso thing and the villain of the week aspect where it's... We're just playing golf now. We're just swinging harder. And now there's like terminal gulf disease which is probably the only other way that they could have introduced conflict to kind of see where the rest of the story was going to go but the potential they could be sisters conflict was just so ridiculous and out of left field it's just kind of like god damn it man like why do you really is this really what we're going to be doing now this is like the crazy twist uh but besides that it literally introduce all these conflicts only to end in a way too quick and way too like satisfying method for that to be like anywhere well thought out and i did love the chaos that the first season brought i just didn't think the rudimentary style that they tried to reintroduce in the second season lived up to 
the magic that they had in the first. Um, but in terms of another season two with Bleach, or at least the second part of the Thousand-Year Blood War, the fights were fine, because that's basically all I'm looking for here. I've, on I've only seen so much of Bleach, and none of the points that they have done, or none of the fights that they did inside of this season, because this season was all fight. There was no slowing down. Everybody was fighting. Everybody was getting into a conflict. Everybody was pulling out Uno reverse cards from their ass constantly, just so they could keep these fights going. Um, I'm trying to even think, like, if I did have to go for a favorite fight, probably Kenpachi, because Ichigo's reintroduced <laughs> everything revolving around Ichigo sucked this season dude like it, it was so trite and like man this is how they're gonna reintroduce the boy it's like Jesus Christ but yeah probably Kenpachi just showing what a monster he is although we did get to see Rukia's Bankai so that was cool but yeah there is not a lot left in this show that can surprise me so I'm just curious to see what the fights are gonna be looking like in season 3 and if there are going to be as many Uno reverse cards as there were in the second season. Because I just want to see a fight, dude. It's like, this is the height of my power. This is the height of my power. Cool. Fight. Go. <laughs> let's, let's just see what happens. Stop saying, oh, I can go even further beyond. And it's just, dude, you've said that four fucking times in the past five minutes. Please don't. Please reach a ceiling for the love of God. Uh, let's see. Ooh, we finally get to another uh, romance. Or romantic killer, in this case. I thought as a... Ridiculous shoujo premise. They did do a lot of the satire really well, especially with how most of this was set up. The stalking aspect is definitely something that is going to be curious to see how well that's going to be going, but I, seeing the jokes that they were able to pull off, especially with the scenarios that they did set up, I want to see those characters be happy in the long run, but this was a completely serviceable romance, and it was totally fine. Now, as for another one that, like, leads up, it didn't... It really does have me concerned, because the manga just completed, and they just really wrapped up the first season of the show a little too neatly, which really has me concerned that they're not going to be doing a second season, but Insomniacs After School, same deal, really cute, really loved the dynamic. Um, it was another manga that I ended up reading, I can't remember if it was 2019 or just in the beginning of the pandemic back in 2020, but... This is a really nice, really quaint uh, romance that you get to see out of two kids who are struggling with issues that aren't of the same magnitude, but have problems that do stem from some of the same roots. And to see how they're able to overcome and interact and grow closer with each other because of those, but even in spite of those problems, it was really nice to see how that relationship was building, and how they're going to continue on to that into the second season, if there ever is one, because, I don't know, I, I really just kind of hope so. Now, let's see, if we had to rate anime, which I can't, like, it's so weird for me to say this, if this was a standalone film for the first part of this show, odds are I would have liked it more than how to, mm, man, it's actually tough to incorporate this, because the feature-length introduction of this show could unfairly put it at the top of a lot of people's, like, best first episode lists. Because if it was just the first episode, then nobody would go through. But the first arc was definitely one of the strongest that 
in got so many people invested in where this story is going to go, especially considering it's done by Aka Akasaka. And Oshinoko did have an incredibly strong piece. I, like I said before, I only read the first chapter, totally dropped it, and then so not knowing what was going to happen in this first arc leading into the future. All I knew is that it was just going to get to some kind of teenagers and I had no idea where. But seeing how they were able to adapt this with the strength that they did in those first four episodes, it did catch me off guard considering that it was a phenomenal introduction towards a show and written by a dude who has done a lot of phenomenal drama pieces inside of his previous work considering this is the same dude that wrote fucking Kaguya. But everything after that was good, but it didn't live up towards anything that the first part of it was able to promise. It, like, it's so tough for me to talk about Oshinoko towards the rest, where it's like, I have nothing, I have a lot of praise, but the fact that we're going to be following Aqua as our perspective towards the rest of the characters, I'm really curious to see how the rest of this goes. Like, it's, it was so tough for me to find a place to put this. Because even though I really did enjoy the first arc, and then I liked the rest of the series, it wasn't something that really stuck with me. And if I hadn't done part of my panel on it, I probably would have just completely forgotten it until season two rolled around. But yeah, only time will tell. And for better or worse, this is an ascending list. So uh, <laughs> it's, it's kind of slipshod, but... It does get better. The, these are the shows that I do feel like got better and better as time went on. Uh, Gundam Season 2. Gundam The Witch from Mercury's second season. Same deal. Had problems. Had a couple of issues like wrapping up everything that was happening after the show. And it left the Utena safety of the school to go fight in real life wars and conflicts. And poor Gwell, man, like, he really got fucking dragged through the mud inside of this entire show. Like, he... I don't think he had a single W. The, he only had, like, one W, and that was something that had, like, a huge asterisk. He... <laughs> I felt so sorry for this dude, man. The way that they were at least able to go through and continue on the story about how the rest of these characters were going to find closure and to find happiness in a world that seldom gives them any, I did like to see how the conflicts were able to be portrayed and how they were able to incorporate a lot of these kids, as Gundam shows do, into a conflict but still find the opportunity to help others and still look for a brighter future inside of a world that is consistently torn asunder by war and conflict and those who would push it just so they could make another dollar. I was glad to see how the rest of this was able to turn out. Yes, it was a little quick pace towards the end of it, and I honestly would have liked to see a bit more of stuff that happened inside of the school, even though a lot of it still did, but not to the same duels that were happening. I was glad to see the characters wind up the way that they did, and it still had me invested and hooked every week that came by. Probably one of the best endings of not like not uh, not endings of the show but just uh eds or ed songs and ed animations really did love that um ranking of kings is also a tough thing to put here because it's not really a second season it's more like season 1.5 you get two episodes out of 10 that progress the story in a way that you would have expected but or, or at least two episodes that take place 
after the show is over. But it does give you bits and pieces of info on characters that you don't really know how they ended up the way that they did. And so it's all setting up to what is going to be a film that is going to be coming out either towards the end of this year or early in 2025. And how that is going to push the story between the realm of mortals, kings, and gods as one of my just favorite fantasy franchises of just anime, period. Like us, fantasy bros have been eating really well between Freyrin, between Delicious and Dungeon, between Ranking of Kings. It's just been so good over the past 12 months. Uh, Dr. Stone's third season really did get me back and invested on what these characters were able to accomplish and what they were able to do inside of this. I The comedy was a little bit better towards the rest of it, even though it is a really, really large cast of characters to try to find the solutions that they need to go through. The way that they're able to still build around the conflicts that they're able to make and create a solution out of the few spare parts that they have was still a really good experience to have over the course of this year. And even though apparently this might be the last good uh, arc of the manga, there's still quite a bit to adapt and there's still quite a bit to at least introduce leading in towards the rest of the series. But knowing the goals that they're going to have to accomplish leading into this final season, I'm really excited to see where they're going to be taking it. Uh, Attack on Titans. Final chapter. Uh, I'll, um, I, I did an entire episode on this. I thought that they ended it in a satisfying enough way as they could. Reiner continues to suffer. All the characters continue to suffer. Aaron got what it's like. Aaron definitely got what he deserved. Um, just seeing a franchise like that that has been around with me throughout the entirety of my anime fandom finally come to a conclusion. It was definitely it definitely had a sense of melancholy and something that I won't be able to go through. But if anybody asks me, it's like, hey. I've heard, I've heard good things about Attack on Titan. I know it's long. Would you recommend it? It is a resounding yes. Even though the last part of this story definitely got a little shaky towards a lot of the events and how they actually had to conclude it, it is still a hard recommendation to anybody that would be invested in getting into a story this long. So where are we at now? Eight? All right. Uh, yeah, eight. So... A lot of people would call me crazy, where it's like, why in the fuck are you putting Skip to Loafer above Attack on Titan? Well, it's just, I would probably say that because I had a lot of expectations for Attack on Titan, and I didn't have any expectations leading into Skip and Loafer. And seeing such a well-crafted high school romance, which this year had quite a few, but easily this was the best one. And a lot of people will say, well, it's not necessarily a romance, and it's more of like a story of friendship and how the majority of these relationships, regardless of the conflicts, and there are a lot of conflicts in teenage relationships, like how a lot of the friendships and the stories and the people that we meet and raise us in a way and leaves us thankful to the messages that they gave to us to at least better ourselves into our lives. And seeing her as in a fish out of water, especially going from a country bumpkin into the heart of Tokyo... I really did enjoy her evolution and finding new friends and trying to make those relationships, even though there are a couple of triangles and a lot of things were like messy as they were, into a way where everybody still has the chance to be happy 
was like easily like one of my biggest surprises of the year. It was so comfy. It was so cheerful and uplifting. And it's probably one of my like favorite reoccurring, or at least like I, I keep saying it's romance. There is a there is romance potential in this story, and I want the romance to happen. But you're not going to be getting it towards the end of the season. But I would still give it a huge recommendation for sure. Uh, same deal. Another one of the shows that I ended up putting into my panel, Undead Girl Murder Farce. You have an immortal, or you have an immortal woman who is just a head, who is a detective who is in a birdcage, who has a battle maid, who is potentially a lesbian, who is inciting the help of an oni, a artificially created oni, to help her find her body over in Europe where they have to fight a ghoulish squad of killers headed by James Moriarty, who then comes into Sherlock Holmes and Dr. Watson who also has to fight between Arsene Lupin and the Phantom of the Opera, who is also fighting Frankenstein, and Jack the Ripper, who then has to incite conflict between werewolves. There is so much going on in this show. But the direction, because it's the same dude who directed Kaguya, the same dude who directed Rakugo Shinju, even with the fact that the Oni, he consistently like recites Rakugo lines, which is also kind of funny. Um, this has... Quality characters, quality writing, quality conflicts, quality action. Basically, every single check down the board is phenomenal. And the fact that we're going to be getting more also has me incredibly excited. Uh, so even so, these two back-to-back -back were really interesting. Because they both have had production issues as like one of the major proprietors of a lot of the conversation that happened around these shows. So, like I guess a joint between the rest of it. If I wanted one that I enjoyed more than the other, um, I think I probably enjoyed ZOM 100 a bit more than I did Jujutsu Kaisen's second season. Uh, JJK's first six episodes, I believe, probably, I honestly do think that they, well, considering how one of the characters only got introduced at the la in the literal last seconds of the final episode, I don't really think that would have been the case, but the first six episodes of the second season of JJK, with probably my favorite opening of the year, was just bar none. It, well, actually, no, it's it's top two. Same deal. These, these shows have a lot in common. Um, the second season of JJK has its faults, has its problems. Most of it's due to production. Part of it was that it was being done weekly. And most of it is the problem of MAPPA's CEO, who is really trying to force production pieces into ones where they don't fit and then everybody suffers as a result. But the fights that we did end up getting in the back half of JJK's second season were extremely exciting and put on such a ridiculous scale that it puts so many other modern shonen to shame. Like, this is probably my currently favorite, uh, like, currently airing shonen by far. And I'm really curious to see how the rest of this is actually going to be introduced later on into the show. But at the very least, probably one of the better arcs. Like, if you want to talk about, like, two of the best openings, Oshinoko uh, with its first four to five episodes, and then JJK with its first six were absolutely phenomenal. 
and then four by two my top two openings of the year probably goes to JJK's first opening and then Zom 100's first opening once they were finally able to complete the rest of it because Zom 100 also with a new studio had a plethora of production issues so much to the point where they actually had to legitimately delay it to the end of this year to even just get out those final three episodes but man, I really do love that opening. Man, the first episode of that was probably one of the best introductions that you could see to anybody. Like, that introduction had so much passion and baggage and weight by comparison to everybody that worked on that show that it was really hard to just not be as excited and as free as they were when they were finally able to break apart the aspect ratio and break into a new kind of life that all of those animators you know wish would be able to have uh but yeah both of those are phenomenal jjk is still the best uh currently running shonen zom 100 is a phenomenal story about taking your yeah not taking your own life um taking life into your own hands and giving yourself the drives and the freedoms and the dreams that you used to have that you lost along the way but at the very least it does give you a chance to restart and give yourself a new perspective on life to try and move forward and then for new perspectives the vinland saga season two and as for new perspectives vinland saga second season it's i will admit i would have this a lot lower if i wasn't able to put it on on 1.5 times speed because most of this is talking and i understand that because we got a lot of action and we got a lot of introspection back in the first season of vinland saga but where most of this show is about thorfinn's growth and his rediscovery of new purpose and meaning and what the world is to him after all of this trauma <clears throat> and after what he thought was going to be his goal in life was taken away from him at the end of the first season and what he is going to be doing moving forward and so the fact that we have been able to get a season which to be fair i do think you need to fast forward because a lot of the talking is slow and a lot of the points are going towards that does not undersell how powerful a lot of these moments are and how much you must persevere inside of those odds that you were against you to find even a semblance of happiness leading into a world that seldom gives you any and so Vinland Saga was like easily like as for a drama one of the best shows of the year by far but another show that came in and I don't really know what to say about it and that's probably Trigun Stampede because there were a couple of episodes that just had me a little bored and was like really curious to see where the rest of it was going to go and then the other half of the episodes were just fucking blowing me out of the water to the point where some of these had the best episodes of the year period like the first and last episode of Trigon Stampede is just easily like one of the best starts and finish to like get you invested and intrigued into a world especially with the design and the finesse and just the overall production that Studio Orange was able to embed into this story where it's got pieces of the anime and pieces of the manga but to then rebuild it into another story entirely which then acts as a new setup for a potential sequel that is going to be coming out later either at the end of this year or at the beginning of 2025 i i know i'm a broken record saying a lot of those but probably 2025 it's such a unique production and a unique project to take upon themselves but with what they were able to accomplish 
with the new ideas they, they were able to imbue inside of Trigun's universe and to give it such polish and such character in stories and universes that you don't get to see as often. It was easily one of my favorites of the year. And one that ended up coming out late in the year as well would go down to Naoki Urasawa's Pluto as a very thinly veiled allegory towards the Iranian conflict. It was a really powerful story leading into what was just expanded upon like a short story like put inside of uh, Astro Boy's universe. And they do a phenomenal job where it's just, yeah, do androids dream a sheep? How advanced can we make AI and androids and robots until they're not even discerned as people? These are questions that have been asked before and answered in many different ways in many different stories about, you know, futuristic robots and the like. I mean, hell, we even had Astro Boy several decades prior. But the way that they were able to adapt and they were able to enhance that kind of a story into a production that I'm pretty sure is over, like, was over five years at this point. But gotten to a degree of polish and set up, especially with the mysteries that were being built over the course of this story, where the action's phenomenal, the characters are well-defined and given so much more humanity than you would have expected inside of a show where the majority of its cast is dominated by androids and beings that had gone through a war and is looking for a reason why humans aren't the most detestable creatures on the planet. And it's hard to argue that. However, it had some of the best scenes that I had seen inside of this year, and all just condensed into one phenomenally well-paced mystery, thriller, action detective story, and it is one of the best recommendations that I can give inside of 2023. And now, I was really contemplating it, and I really do think that Probably Apothecary or Freyron could have taken this number one spot if not for my fucking ridiculous, you know, list-making scheme just to bring this down to 23. But even though I have talked about it at length, and even though the fucking argument still stands about is this an anime or is this not, I mean, I do believe that with the amount of fun and with the amount of passion and with the new story that they were able to rebuild into the way that they were able to collaborate, especially with Brian Lee O'Malley and his team, Scott Pilgrim fucks off the rebuild of scott pilgrim scott pilgrim fucks off or in this case the its actual title scott pilgrim takes off is easily my favorite anime of the year by far it got me reinvested into a show and a franchise that i really felt like i had already experienced as much as i could have but now knowing how good the graphic novel is now knowing how good this anime is and revisiting and reappreciating how good the film was that edgar wright was able to go through it is one of those franchises where every single iteration is a nine out of ten or more they are all so phenomenal in reimagining these specific parts of the world to create an experience that I have talked at length before, but to give it its own unique story and its own unique message and its own unique themes over the course of three different adaptations, it's just such a phenomenal way to just bring forward this kind of adaptation. And I really don't think that any more inside of Scott Pilgrim can be done justice because you've you've got it written, you've got it animated, you've got a live action, you've got it in a video game. I think that's the final nail in the coffin for this franchise, but it is not a nail that signifies the death of something that is going towards the rest of it. It is 
one that is... <laughs> you were basically just putting a nail up on the wall to frame. It's kind of like, oh yeah, no, Scott Pilgrim, one of the best media franchises of all time. Bar none. Oh boy, I'm really going to have to try to find a way to edit this down to some what a more consumable degree, but yeah, I'll get to it when I get to it. Loved 2023. Really excited to what's going to be coming in 2024. A lot of opportunities, a lot of good films, a lot of good shows, a lot of good anime. Just media in general has me excited for what this year has in store for us. For what this year has in store for us. Cheers, have a good one.